Let's pray. Holy Spirit, may you speak to us through your holy word and help us to change to be more like Christ. And God, may you anoint my lips even as I speak your word. And God, I also want to pray, Lord, that you, may your word, Lord, be edified to the congregation. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Allow me to boldly uh, share with you what God has impressed upon my heart uh, today. And may I pray that the Word of God will challenge each and every one of us to please Him even more. Now today, I would like to do a recap of the law and its purpose, and then we will move on to the Sixth Commandment. And then we will hear what Jesus has to say about the Sixth Commandment. Now, to recap the purpose of the law, let me first tell you what the law is not. Now, the law is not for personal moralism. It is not for us to measure and compare our righteousness. Neither is it used for us to see are we holier than another person. Now, if you can remember at the beginning of this series, Pastor did mention that God first saved the people of Israel from Egypt and He redeemed them. Then He gave them the law. Therefore, the law is meant for a redeemed people. Now, sometimes it's very funny when I uh, listen to news that people are protesting and saying that, you know, they want to impose God's law in a secular government, you know, that the law should be uh, in the judiciary uh, law of the list of laws. Now, the problem here is that why should we impose a law that is meant for a redeemed people to non-believers? The whole idea is that for the non-believers, they are not even they don't even intend to keep the law. Why impose the law on them? Therefore, the law is meant for a redeemed people. Now, Pastor mentioned uh, he quoted uh, Peter the Thug, uh, last week. Okay, this facet of the law is that the law will expose our sin so that we. Repent before God. And the law will restrain our unruly behavior. And the law will also guide us in our life. And ultimately, Jesus Christ is the heart and soul of the law. Now today, I would like to unpack a little about why Jesus is the heart and soul of the law. Now another very beautiful facet of the law is that when we practice them, when we obey them, we actually reflect God's character, God's nature, and God's will for us. 
Professor Walter Geiser, in his book Towards the Old Testament Ethics, says, The law has a loving spirit in its prologue and as well as in his main body of the commands. And the course of action ought to be taken because it best reflects the character, nature, and the will of God. So the whole idea about the law when, it, when we obey is that we will demonstrate God's nature in us to the people around us, even to the unbelievers. And when they see us, they see God. Because the nature of God is being reflected by the law that we obey. Then Jesus went on to uh, verse 19 and 20 of Matthew chapter 5. And he said that unless your law, sorry, unless your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know that the scribes and the Pharisees during Jesus' time were the most meticulous people around. They spent their whole entire life studying the Torah and make sure that they obey every single one to the dot. Now, if we were to use our righteousness and trying to surpass them, I don't think it will ever be possible. So, why Jesus says, unless our righteousness surpass them, then we can enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is the beautiful thing that happened. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, God made Christ who knew no sin because he is sinless. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that through him we become the righteousness of God. Therefore, we do not depend on our righteousness to try to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Instead, we use Christ's righteousness imputed upon us to surpass it. And it is only by Christ's righteousness that we will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ fulfilled the law in us. You know, sometimes when I was reading um, verse 17, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So when I was young at the time, when I asked around, and then people tell me, oh, uh, Jesus Christ came only to fulfill the ceremonial law, the rituals. And then he left the moral law to us to obey. And then some other people say, oh, Jesus Christ fulfilled the entire law in his lifetime, in his life. But then I think something is not correct over there. But when I came to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 said, okay, let me go one step back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, and by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then, what comes next is the most beautiful thing. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Now, the whole idea when Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for us is to take away our sin and impute his righteousness on us so that the righteous requirement of the law already fulfilled. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, the author says, For by one single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Who are those who are being sanctified? You and I. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, once and for all, for all time, he has perfected you, perfected me. That's the reason why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, a, a little lower, as Jesus called us, call us into perfection because we are already perfected in Christ. Christ's spirit is living in us. Therefore, we have Christ's righteousness. We are being perfected already. And Christ asks us to live that life of perfection, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Then some people say, oh, I'm under grace, not under law. Does that mean that the law is abolished or obsolete? No. Even though we are not under the law, in fact, the law is right inside of us. It's no longer outside of us like what the Jews um, faithfully obey. They obey the law because they fear that they, they will break the law and then God will punish them. But for us, no, the law is now living in our lives. The very nature of us is to do the law. If the law is not part of us, if the law is not whole of us, at least it should be part of us. We should live out the law and exhibit God's character, nature, and will. And then some of them say, oh, you know, by faith we are set free from the law. Is it so? No. God did not set us free from the law. But God set us free from sin. The law is now part of our nature. You know, recently there is this uh, bus and TV over social media called I am an influencer. Not influencer, but influencer. What is, who is an influencer? According to Wikipedia, Influencers in social media are people who have built a reputation for their knowledge and expertise on a certain topic, such as fashion or technology. They make regular posts about the topic on their preferred social media, such as Instagram or Facebook, and generate a large following of enthusiastic, engaged people who pay close attention to their views. Now I'm not. I, I mean, if you are, if you open, if you open the closet and one day look at your clothes and then you think, hmm, I should be uh, buying some new clothes, then you can go and consult them, their expertise. But the whole idea here, I want to ask is, how can we, as Christian, become an influencer in our life? How can we become an influencer in our lives? And the whole idea here is that we exhibit God's character in us by practicing the law. We exhibit God's nature in us 
so that those people who see us see God. In fact, I would say we should not be even an influencer. We should be, uh, as, we, as the situation now, you know, about vi- all the virus thing, we should be infecting others with our godly lives. Our godly character should be contagious, spreading to one another, even as we practice the law of God in our lives. You know, when we are told uh, to don't steal, we don't steal. So that people, when they look at us, they see that God's nature is living in us. The whole idea of this first section, which I would like to conclude, is that the word, the law of God is written in our hearts. Pastor did mention uh, earlier in a previous uh, sermon that in Hebrews chapter 8, that God will write his law in our hearts. And because of Jesus Christ, the law of God has already written in our hearts. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the law. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, again, um, he mentioned again, the author mentioned again that God has written the law in our hearts. Now let me go on to the second point. The second point, the sixth commandment reads, you shall not murder Four words. How difficult can it be? How difficult can the instruction be that you shall not murder? And I have to stand here to talk uh, for 30 minutes. Now, you heard, uh, the, you heard um, the scripture reader read some, uh, sorry, uh, Numbers 35. And you will notice that if you pay attention, there is a repeated phrase throughout these 13 verses. Just a short passage of 13 verses. You will hear the phrase, the murderer shall surely be put to death. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The seriousness of murdering. Death penalty. Now what is the definition of murder? Murder, as the Bible puts it, is premeditated killings or intentional killings. Now, there are many other laws that have the same penalty, that's a death penalty, such as kidnapping. You know that kidnapping is death penalty. Curses, cursing parents, striking parents, even abortion, death penalty except for manslaughter. That's why we have the city of refuge. You know, this is accident, so it's not intentional. You know. So what is the essence behind this death penalty that uh, is so serious? And one of the things that stands out about murder, about premeditated killings or intentional killing, is that there is no remission. That means the person who murders somebody has to die. But the rest, there is remission. You, know, you can actually pay a ransom for it. 
So the whole essence here is that an attack on the blood of a person, that means physical death, or the dignity of a person, or the worth of a person, actually attacks God's image. Actually attacks the image of God. That is the reason why the death sentence is the death sentence is given to these cases. Because when a man kills another person, he is actually killing God in effigy. That means killing the mother of God. Because we are made in the image of God in Genesis chapter 126. So he owed his life, the murderer owed his life not to the family of the victim. He didn't owe his life to the society or to the judicial law of the country, but he owed his life to God. Murder is an offense to God. It cheapens God's image. It also cheapens the cross of Christ. Know that you can hear sometimes, you know, in the Western country, they say, abolish the death penalty, abolish the death penalty. You know, murderers can serve their life in prison, but don't kill them. What are they trying to say? They are trying to say that murderers don't need to die. So what is Christ's death for? When we, all of us who are sinners, we sin against God, and the penalty given to us is death penalty. We must die. And the whole idea why Christ is being nailed on the cross is because he paid that death penalty for us. And if we say that, you know, murderers don't need to die, then we are trying to say Christ don't need to die. Christ don't need to pay that penalty for us. We don't need him. That's why by saying that murderers do not need to die, therefore, the cross of Christ become nullified. And furthermore, this law was actually given way before Moses gave the Ten Commandments. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, after the flood, God said to Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Already this law has been passed during Noah's time. During that time, you know, only Noah and his family is alive, nobody else. So this is a universal law, a law that's supposed to be kept by all human beings on earth. How much more the redeemed people that we need to keep that commandment. You know, again, Professor Walter Kaiser says that there is a positive and a negative aspect of the law. In fact, every law has a positive and negative aspect of it. Let me read. He says, a command is never fulfilled either by a referring to, uh, refraining to engage in an act, such as murder, or by a single act of positive aid. Therefore, we will not only refrain from injuring our neighbours, but we will do all that is in our power to contribute to the life and the well-being of our neighbour. The idea here is not to refrain from breaking the law. You see, by just refraining from breaking the law does not fulfil the command at all. We need to do the positive side of the law. I know all of us are experts in refraining from breaking the law. 
I'm sure there is no murderers here, right? No stealers or stealers, no thieves, thieves, no liars, right? We are very good at refraining from breaking the law. But are we doing the positive aspect of the law? If I'm told not to steal, I don't steal, but I give generously all the time, perpetual. If I'm asked not to lie, I don't lie, but I speak the truth all the time. So the whole idea here about this uh, law on thou shalt not murder is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Matthew 22, 39. Okay, let us go on to see what Jesus has to say about the sixth commandment. Jesus always look at the heart of the matter. I do not want to read because it has already uh, been read. Matthew 5, 21-22. Jesus trying to equate anger to murder. Now, what is the consequences of murder? Death penalty. If, e- if anger is equated to murder death penalty. Because Jesus said, you hear, murder subject to judgment. So is anger if one is angry with a brother. So why is anger so severe? Is it wrong to be angry? Of course not. Because no verse in the Bible says that, you know, by being angry, you have sinned. Because Jesus himself was also angry when he saw the Jews trying to turn the courts of the Gentiles into a marketplace, he was angry. And Paul says that, be angry and do not sin. So therefore, anger is not a sin. But festering anger can lead to sin. You know, the more we allow our anger to fester, the more we will find all sorts of reasons to justify our anger. Here is one uh, news article that I got on Thursday. And it says, a former police officer jailed for abusing maid. Why? Because the court heard that the officer took out her anger on the maid. She shouted at her, calling her names, insulted her, humiliated her. For what? Simply because she put the groceries in the wrong cupboard. And then she will kick her, spat on her, threw things on her, because the cup of water she served has an end inside. Such trivial things. And the maid was abused. If we allow our anger to fester, we tend to take matters into our own hands. So, when we are angry, we tend to judge others, but we always forget that we too are under judgment. We are all living by grace. What is Jesus' remedy? Jesus' remedy is to reconcile at all costs to reconcile at all costs. Why do I say at all costs? Let me show you the part that he gave an example. 
in Matthew 5.23, he says, you know, when you, when you are going to do offer an offering, then remember that your brother is angry with you. Now, interestingly down here, Jesus never say when you are trying to offer to God your offering and then thereby remember you are angry with your brother. No, he didn't say that. He said your brother is angry with you. Why? Because when you are angry, you can easily say, God, forgive me, I'm sorry, you know, then confess your sins and that's it. And you can proceed on to offer your sacrifice. But if your brother is angry with you, you really have to seek him out. Be reconciled to him. And then come back and offer the sacrifice. Isn't that simple? Let us not forget that Jesus was speaking this passage to the Galileans in, at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And for a Galilean to worship God, where must he go? He must go to Jerusalem. Now, for him to take a ram or take a lamb and travel to Jerusalem, he needs to spend at least two to three days' journey. Can you imagine you bring your lamb all the way to Jerusalem and about to offer and you realize that your brother is angry with you and you have to reconcile with him? You have to leave your lamb there and then take two to three days' journey on foot back to Galilee to reconcile with him. And then after that, after having reconciled with him, you have to take another two to three days and walk all the way back to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice. It is quite impossible for a person to do that. So why is Jesus showing this passage? To put on a perspective, you know, I'm sure many of you went to Malacca. If you were to travel on foot from Singapore to Malacca, and offer worship, and then realize that you have a brother who is against you in Singapore, you just have to walk all the way back to Singapore and get reconciled with him. And then walk all the way back to Malacca. I'm sure you don't want to do that, right? right? So the whole idea, what Jesus is saying, that be reconciled all the time. Whether are you going to worship God or not, be reconciled. Have no enmity between one another at all costs. And if your brother refused to uh, reconcile with you, there's nothing you can do. You just have to let God be God. Let him be the judge and surrender this matter to Jesus Christ. Okay. And the Apostle Paul also gave an advice. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, literally, I say, stop. He, I mean, I'm Quoting him, I say, stop anger in its track. Although Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give opportunity to the devil. The whole idea here is when you are angry. Yes, every one of us will be angry at one point of time. But quickly settle your anger before the day is over. Just like what Jesus says, before he went, he, your, your accuser go to the court, settle it quickly before you end up in jail. So the whole idea here is to stop anger in its track. And James, James is even more radical. In James chapter 1, 19, 20, he says, I, my words, 
don't even be angry at all. Don't even be angry at all. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Because the anger of man is from the flesh. As we can see in Galatians 5, Paul says anger is a nature of the flesh. And Paul says in Romans 8, if we set our mind on the flesh, it's death. Because mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It will not submit to God because it cannot. It cannot please God. That's why the concluding matter for this about the anger is to walk in the spirit and do not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Because the moment we fall into the desires of the flesh, then anger kicks in. As I close, I would like to show you a summary of the three points. Let us recap the three points and ponder for a moment over them. As a redeemed people of God, today we have the law of God written in our hearts. Why? Because Jesus, who is the master of our law, is living in us. That's the reason why the law is in us. Okay? It is in our nature, and we are supposed to exhibit them and influence others by the way we live. Then, in obedience to the sixth commandment, we refrain from hurting one another, and, but instead to contribute to the life of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The whole idea here is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because Paul says in Romans 13, love does no wrong to our neighbor. And lastly, stop our anger in its track and prevent it from festering by walking in the spirit and do not and we will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. The ultimate end product is a heart that is pleasing to God. You know, recently, after I have done all preparation, I received a WhatsApp from my friend. Okay. He's a retiree, he's a Christian and what he used to do is he liked to spend time outside of the dormitory and he will witness to the Indians and actually do Bible study with them. And for no reason, I didn't tell him that I'm preaching, neither did I tell him that I'm talking about the law. He sent me this a Bible study he did with the uh, Indians outside the dormitory. What struck me is this. Because they were doing the scripture, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 23, you who boast to the, with the, about the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And then the observation by this Indian says, because people only read and preach the law, but do not practice it in their personal life. Who are those who read the law? Every one of us. Who are those who preach the law? Me. I'm here preaching the law to you. 
I better learn how to practice the law in my personal life. I think each and every one of us need to practice the law in our personal life so that we won't be forfeit. We won't forfeit uh, ourselves. <clears throat> and the application is that what I know, I must follow it. What I know, I must follow it. Yes. When, if, we, if, we, if we claim that the law is in us, then let us obey the law and reflect God's character in us so that when people see us, people see God. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for redeeming our lives by the blood of Jesus. As a redeemed people, we have your law written in our hearts. Help us to live it out in our lives and influence other people. Help us not only to refrain from hurting others, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. Give us the strength to walk by the Spirit, and we will not give way to the flesh. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.